Welcome to the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast, presented to you by Hetra University. If you've landed here, you're probably passionate about how horses help people. Whether you're an instructor, therapist, in the business, or have experienced equine-assisted services yourself, we're glad you're here. Join us as we talk about the benefits, the science, to-dos, how-tos, and all of the reasons why what we do is so much more than just a pony ride. And now, from the Hetra campus in Gretna, Nebraska, here's your host, occupational therapist Katie King. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Today I have Rebecca Britt, and she is the founder creator of Stable Moments, which is a unique equine assisted mentorship program for kids who have experienced complex developmental trauma. And her program specifically targets those who have been in the foster care system um, or who are adopted from the foster care system because those kids have experienced a different level of trauma in those really, really critical age years from zero to five years old. So I'm going to leave Rebecca to the nuts and bolts of it. She really did a great job explaining to us what that trauma is, what it looks like, and really why working with and around horses is so just immensely beneficial for them. I think just it was really interesting how she explained parallels between natural horsemanship and working with horses and working with kids who have experienced that level of trauma. You just can't help but think to yourself, that makes so much sense. And um, so she's going to explain that to us and how her program helps those kids and how you can access this program for your own center in her incredibly thorough, structured method, really, of of training you and, and getting this program going in your own center. So grab a, a pencil and paper. It's another one of those episodes that you're going to want to really listen into. So enjoy. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Of course. Well, I am excited too to share your story with everybody and your valuable work that you're doing at Stable Moments. So why don't you tell everyone who you are and how you ended up here? Yeah, yeah. So I'm Rebecca Britt. Uh, I have a background in social work and a background in program evaluation and horses, of course. Um, I started training horses, grabbing them off the racetrack when I was in my teens. and I didn't know what to do with them because they were horses off the racetrack and they were too much for me. So that's really where I started to learn about natural horsemanship. Um, and I, I got my degree in social work and I didn't know that I cared to work with kids in foster care. Um, but it was the only job that was hiring in a recession. So I took it. And what I learned as a post-adoption case manager, which really what that means is people come to you when they're after they've adopted, but they're ready to give the kid back. They're like, this is not what we signed up for. Never mind. And my job was like, oh no, like that's not really a thing. You can't give the kids back. Um, and I'm going to teach you some therapeutic parenting techniques or, or whatever, so that you can keep this kid. And what was cool and how I ended up here was because I just learned that the therapeutic interventions, the principles that you use to work with these kids and relate with these kids and help heal were identical to natural horsemanship. Like it was like not being punitive, understanding their life or death mentality, um, understanding that they're hypervigilant and they're constantly scanning for threats. And like every time I'd learn a new thing about trauma, at least uh, developmental trauma, I was like, 
Oh, same, same, same. Like with natural horsemanship, of course, nobody else was like making those like aha moments because it's kind of rare, uh, you know, different schools of thought. But mm-hmm. um, so I, I left Vermont after years of being a social worker and decided to kind of try this thing with foster kids and horses. And how I did that was just walked onto a rescue and was like, Hey, would you mind if I had, if I hung out with kids and invited some kids from foster care, um, to groom some horses and they were like, sure, whatever. And through that, I realized like the need and how much people wanted it and how helpful it was for kids. And also how, I was not going to be able to do all of the work. So that's kind of where the idea that we'll talk about came in for um, community mentorship. Um, But honestly, I built that program and I went to a PATH International Conference and I told people about the program I had built, which had become pretty structured and color coded and like all these things to make it work. And it was it was my colleagues at PATH that were like, this is really special. You're doing something great. We want you to publish it, create it, make it a replicable model, and people will plug it into their program. So really how I got here was encouragement from the industry. Wow. Oh my gosh. Your story evolved quite a bit. I mean, what is this um, kind of time frame? So how many years ago was that that you walked onto the, the, the rescue site and said, hey, can we do this? to now? Oh gosh. Uh, so 2013. So, um, we're almost at about 10 years. That's excellent. Well, congratulations. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. And you know, we have, we have over 25 locations now, so, you know, path people were right. They, they wanted it. Um, and I think that it's, uh, for a lot of executive directors or program directors or nonprofit directors, finding new programming that's easy to implement, that will bring in additional revenue, that won't take too much staff, um, that's plug and play, like that's wanted, you know, huge. People want to serve populations, but like the creating programs and figuring it all out and doing all that trial and error is not usually what people have capacity for. Right. And it takes so, so many man hours to develop that programming before you can even get your participants in the door, you know, or boots on the ground, making the program happen. And so saving, you know, you don't think about how much, how much resources go into just having a professional develop that program for you, you know, to even start bringing in revenue. So very neat. So you develop the programming and then send it, you know, programs can buy that program from you and then implement it in their own centers is the idea. Yeah. So um, basically at first I wrote a book, which was like the nuts to bolts manual of like how you would do this. And and that's still available. But um, and then I was doing in-person trainings where people had to like, you know, fly me out and have them try to have me, you know, put up a program in their facility, which was expensive, not only time, but money. And um So in COVID era, it was like this beautiful time that I was able to launch the certification training online and it's 14 hours of multimedia um, education online where I can give feedback via video, even on natural horsemanship skills tests and stuff like that. Um, And yeah, people are able to get certified in the model all at their own pace um, and from the comfort of their own home. 
and then they can join the community that are, are stable moments locations. But another thing that's nice too is that when people become a location, we give them unlimited access passes to the mentor training online. So we know that all of our mentors over the all over the country are getting the same training in early developmental trauma um, and our approach and all of that. And it really takes a whole load off the program directors because when we first started this, we had to like give them a slide deck and hope that they could kind of replicate how I would train it. Um, and so they, this way, they're just like, here's a coupon code to all their mentors, and they all have to go on and just take their own training before they can start their program. So yeah, lots of kind of weight administrative aspects taken off the program directors. Right. And that's so accessible too, you know, for people. I think that was one thing that COVID did I mean, COVID did us dirty, but it did show us that there's a lot of different ways to, to do things and making things more accessible online for really high quality education and programs like that was something that, that we found through COVID for sure. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, so we know how to, um, you know, we've kind of alluded to all of this and now, so now I want to know exactly what the program is. Um, tell me about stable moments in general and, and more about your program. Yeah. So Stable Moments is a mentorship program. So we match up one foster or adopted kid or really just a child with complex trauma needs, which we define that as uh, developmental trauma, trauma that happens over and over again within their first core years of development. So in utero to five years old, it's really important. That's a really important piece because we hear in every industry right now, right? Trauma, trauma, trauma. And everybody's like, oh, every kid has trauma. And I'm not minimizing any level of trauma, but our program is very specifically made for kids that their brains weren't able to develop because of their trauma. They remained in their survival brain. They weren't able to develop social and emotional and cognitive and rational parts of their brain because of the trauma that they were um, facing when they were in utero all the way up to five years old really quick. What is, what is your definition of trauma or, you know, we know that it's, it's a broad scale, but if you were going to say, you know, kids who've been through trauma, what are some examples of kids that you might see in this program? Yeah. So, so I'm going to use the words complex trauma or developmental trauma, and that's the trauma I'm talking about, which is abuse, neglect, or abandonment. So a child has been abused in their core years of development. They've been abandoned. So this might be a child that is um, is given up for adoption, but like at birth. And so people go, well, this kid doesn't have any trauma. The mom, you know, made the right decision and gave them to a great family. Well, there's still that abandonment there that happened in their core years of development. Um And then neglect, that's really what we see the most of is a lot of uh, medical or just nourishment neglect. So kids that have not had their needs met, they, they, their diapers dirty, they're, they need to be fed and they start crying and nobody comes. And there's research to suggest that kids that young, even three months old that aren't getting their needs met, don't believe that mom is messed up. They believe something must be wrong with me where I don't deserve care. Mm -hmm. So it's woven into the fabric of their being this worthlessness. So those are the kids I'm talking about. Now, when we define trauma, of course, trauma is anything that has that impact on your life. And, but, but there's so many different levels of trauma, right? right? And we have all experienced trauma, but for this program specifically, 
uh, it's children with uh, early developmental trauma. And the reason why we talk about that, and I hammer that home so hard is because people go, we've gone through your activities, we see we just don't know why this wouldn't be beneficial for kids that have divorced parents, or we don't know why this wouldn't be beneficial for kids that uh, lost a parent. Um, and I say that it, it's not that it wouldn't be beneficial, but a child that, let's say a child that was raped at nine years old, but had two loving parents, knew what it was to be fed, knew what it was to be safe, had the resilience factors of being able to um, have a stable environment. It's just a different perspective in the approaches and the interventions we take with the kids that have developmental trauma are just different than kids that had a safe, loving, caring environment in their core years of development. And it's not fair to train a mentor to say, this kid's had all these things happen to them and they've been removed from their home or whatever it is. And then they get matched up with Tommy who's had a divorced parent and they're looking at Tommy like they need to approach him in this way when it's like, no, you know, Tommy's mm -hmm. like the rest of us that have had trauma. So, um, okay, so that's, we match up one kid that has complex trauma with one horse, one community mentor, one hour a week for 10 months. Our our locations don't have to do 10 months, but we are a long-term program because, you know, so many equine assisted therapies are eight weeks, 12 weeks. Um, and we just find that with these kids at 12 weeks, you might be making some relational, you know, um, leeway with them. Like mm -hmm. you might be getting to know them. So we find that like the real healing and the magic happens when they truly believe that you are going to show up for them once a week and you're going to spend an hour with them and you're really going to be there and you're not going to abandon them. And the only way that we build that is coming over and over again. And, you know, I would say keep doing it for longer than 10 months, but you know, people need breaks at some point. So, mm -hmm. um, that that's what our program is. We have um, each kid gets their own individualized plan of care. So we train all of our program directors to do an intake assessment, which assesses the, ask the parents about the kids' strengths, interests, challenges. And then I have this life skills category worksheet, which basically breaks down the different challenges these kids have um, that I've seen over years of working with them. They all kind of boil down to the same 10 challenges. And then depending on which challenge that kids have, we kind of put them in six different categories for life skill development. And those are color-coded categories, and that helps these program directors build the plans of care. The plans of care have three focus areas, which are also color-coded, and all of our activities, which are structured equine and non-equine activities, are color-coded as well, so that mentors can walk onto the barn to, to a session and say, I know my kid has blue in their plan of care. I'm going to choose a blue activity and they can be doing a therapeutic activity for that kid. And it just looks like fun. I love and we that. built all that structure. We built all that structure because nobody knew what the heck they were doing. It wasn't because Rebecca had this beautiful brainchild. It was like, oh my gosh, mentors are coming. They have no clue why they're here. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to have conversations with kids. Uh, it's awkward. And mm -hmm. so I had to kind of in a very um, lay terms way, kind of show people how the most basic things can be therapeutic and create those into activities 
on the activities, it shows um, discussion questions. You know, you don't just like do the activity and then like, go good, we did it. What are we going to, you know? Yeah. It's like, okay, like, let's talk about that. What was like that for the kid? What was it like for the horse? What was it like for you, the mentor? What was their favorite parts? What could you do better next time? So many opportunities to connect with these kids. So we have um, color-coded activities that we choose from. Each kid and mentor makes a three-part plan every time that has that is connection, um, life skills development, and then transition. And then there's activity logs for qualitative data after mentors have to say, how did they work towards their plan of care goals? And we also do pre and post test um, for the kids to make sure that we are developing life skills um, in, in collecting that data in some type of quantitative fashion. So okay. it's very structured. Um, but it's structured in all the ways that we've learned it needs to be. Right. For easy access, you know, for someone to just pick up a program with, like you said, kind of without you present there to really talk through it, you know, in person, how do we make it easy for other people to do that? And I think I have a lot of questions, but (laughs) one of them is, um, go away, shoot away is is definitely let's talk through the program a little bit, but then I also want to get to. Um, how you set up just in general, a program like this, because I think there are so many people in our industry that are doing this amazing work with these specific populations and, and want to be able to share that with people. And how did you embark on that journey? So let's, don't let me forget about that. Let's ear, you know, dog ear that tab for a little bit later, but (laughs) so your program, what professions does it target? So like I'm an occupational therapist you're, you are in social work. So what professions is your program kind of targeted to? So the most important piece of my program, professional background, really honestly is the horse piece. Mm-hmm. Um, it was human services, but now with my certification training, constant access to me for locations, um, access to the community, I feel pretty good that I've trained them in trauma in how our approach is, how developing plans of care, why we do intake assessments, how we take care of parents, how we you know train mentors. So the human services piece, I feel pretty good that I've done a good job. What I can't do, and I try through the natural horsemanship skills tests, and I teach them, I even give them, like people submit their assignments of like join up and yo-yo game. And I sit there and give them feedback via video on, oh, we shouldn't, we should have released there. We should have asked them to move back farther there. But that's the piece that when I first started this, I was actually shocked at how many people were in the equine assisted industry. And I wasn't really, I don't know if they knew how to lead a horse properly. Um, And I would, and they were coming to a certification to not just do natural horsemanship. They were going to train mentors who were going to train kids to do natural horsemanship. Mm -hmm. So that's why the levels of my program are there to um, have the natural horsemanship skills test because natural horsemanship lends so much to this population, being able to be attuned to their body language and being able to Mm -hmm. um, connect with the horse and have all of that amazing. um, It's really like attunement and, um, you know, because you have to like sense where the horse is at and be able to respond to it. But if the leader, if the program director doesn't know how to do that, it's really, um, I could see the program being rough. not, not quite, you know, have the integrity that we expected. Right. Or have the full therapeutic value, because that's really where being able to read, you know, those subtle cues in our horses is, is where that 
that dissonance comes from between the person working from with them and the horse. And so that's kind of where that therapeutic aha stuff comes from is reading a lot of that. And then of course, facilitating the discussion afterwards about those aha moments. Right. So being able to do Mm -hmm. both of those things is, is huge. Do you find that, that people who begin your program, um, the types of horses they use. Does that make sense? So we have so many of our, our horses in therapeutic environments that just, they know their job, they, they do them well. And we love those guys because they're our go-to guys, but might be a little less sensitive to some of these things or that type of thing. Do you see that since you're training people all over the place with all different types of horses? Yeah. I just recently had somebody that was going through our program that said like, we can't do the yo-yo game, which if people aren't uh, familiar, it's a Pirelli game where you, you know, wag the lead rope and the horse is supposed to back up. And then you release the second the horse moves. And she was like, our horses have literally been trained to stand still, no matter what we do. Like, it doesn't matter what you're throwing at them or whatever. And I was like, well, you know, give it a try. Like, um, but there's always a conversation to be had. Mm -hmm. So I would love to know that the program director knows how to respond to horses, knows that they um, can sense these subtle cues, like the more natural horsemanship training that they can get, the better. Like, I think that that should be the continuing ed that so Mm -hmm. many of us do is learning about speaking the horse's language. Um, But there's always a conversation to be had. Like even some of my tutorial videos didn't go the right way, because that's what natural horsemanship is, is like, well, I don't know, that didn't go well. And you know what, you're going to face that in all of your sessions with a lot of your sessions with your kids mm-hmm. is like, you had an idea and you were going to like have a rewarding job that day. And it was going to be fulfilling. And like the kid, you know, said that they hated being here and stomped away. And you're like, you have to be able to face that with like, that's interesting. Hmm, mm-hmm. Like there's really something here. He felt safe enough to say that to me rather than seeing it as, well, I don't know why I just gave my hour, you know? So right. it's the exact same way. Cause with horses, when they like run through the gate, we're like, Oh, like there's something to work on today. If we're not like you idiot, or we're not supposed to be, <laughs> you know, at least we're supposed <laughs> to be aware when we feel that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so I love that your program is not only teaching people this natural horsemanship and how we read horses and do that, but you're also giving them the tools to, to intake that participant and then work with them, obviously, like through all the activities and different things. And how do we respond to that? Because I feel like that's what a lot of programs, especially online programs that you can purchase. That's what a lot of it is missing is it's kind of a a handbook of like, here's some activities to do with veterans, or here's some activities to do with you know, children in foster care or whatever it is, but they don't, it doesn't have the stuff that happens before that, which is how do you work with the horses yourself? How do you read the horses? And then how do you teach others to read them? So your program, I mean, can you purchase, like when you, when you go through this program, is it, you always go through it from start to finish and you get a lot of that natural horsemanship and then advance to working with the participants or can you buy like sections of it or how does that work? Yeah, well, the the best thing for I think that and I'm trying not to just like toot my own horn here, but I think 
the book that I've written would be good for anyone in the industry. And that has nothing to do with the certification training. You don't have to like be wanting to do a stable moments program. It would just help you understand kids in foster care in horses better. A lot of stories about why behavior roots back to something in childhood or an experience mm -hmm. somebody has an experience a mentor has because this empathy that you're giving these horses and these kids, you also have to give this empathy to your staff, you need to give this empathy to mentors. Like we are all just flawed beings trying to do good things in the world, but we get triggered, we get frustrated. And guess what? All of our crap has to do with our childhood. So mm -hmm. we all are just carrying this stuff, right? And some of us are more aware of it than others, but um, trying to have more perspective and awareness, I think is just great for anyone. So I always tell anyone like the book, get the book because you can read through the book. And then if you're like, oh, this is great. I want to go further or I want to do this at my facility, then there's always the option of certification. But um, just just understanding these kids, I think, would help. I, you'll read the book and know that you have a kid at your facility that fits one of those molds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's something for everybody there, no matter if you're doing that specific program or not. Um, so where can people, what's your book called and where can people find it? I'll link it in the show notes too, for everybody that's listening, but just for audio sake. Yeah, you can go to stablemoments.com. We have a free webinar there that talks about healing, um, trauma with EAL and mentorship. Um, and we have the book there, um, at our store. Uh, we also have our activities pack and um, which are the color coded activities, which we have had sites just buy our activities and not run our program. Um, and the whole certification uh, pathway is there, too, that that people can look into, you know, what's really interesting. And I think an additional like value is the whole fact that this is community mentors. So this actually gives some people pause because they're like. How do we trust, you know, members of the community to hang out with kids and some people run a pilot program just with staff, but this was created for community mentors and the reason why it was was because I was hanging out with kids I was doing one hour a week with 12 different kids while I had a full time job I was trying to manage both and I realized what I was doing was not that special meaning like I didn't need to be a, ther a therapist. I was spending time with a child. I was pouring into them. I was doing it with the lens of a social worker. I was doing it with a certain approach, a trauma-informed approach. But besides that, I was giving my time. I was showing up over and over again. I was being reliable. I was telling the kid that they mattered. I was showing them that their strengths, I was developing winning streaks for them. And that, I believe, if there's any hope for this world, members of our community can give that they can do that and we need we can't do everything so we need if we want to be good leaders to inspire and teach and build up our army of people that will also be trauma-informed and pour into these kids and when people go well i don't know if i can expect somebody to commit to 10 months. I don't know if I can expect somebody to commit to the same. Well, you better be able to expect somebody because why are you running your thing? You can't do it all. Mm -hmm. If you are going to believe in your cause, that your mission matters, that these kids matter, that these then, and you expect donors to give to it and you expect to be good stewards of that money, 
then it better be a good enough idea that you believe other people are going to commit to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and I believe that and the kids are worth it. And when you say like, I don't know if I can get somebody to do that, you're directly saying or indirectly saying that the kids aren't worth it. And if you just change your perspective, they're freaking worth it. They're mm -hmm. worth an hour of our time. We're not asking people to open up their homes. We're not asking you to be a foster parent. We're like, we're, and we're not even asking you to give money. Like, do you have an hour a week? And if you do, then you can make a difference. I don't think that you need to have any more credential than that. This episode of the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast is sponsored in part by Equiforce. Equiforce is a database that allows you to track every facet of your organization, from horse, donor, and volunteer management, to scheduling, grant tracking, incident reports, and tracking participant progress, too. This is not a one-size-fits-all setup. Instead, Equiforce personally works with you to learn how your facility functions and takes note of your specific terminology so that they can create a unique system to match the needs of your organization. And of course, Equiforce provides an ongoing training and support so that your database can grow with you. Visit them at www.equiforce.com. That's E-Q-U-I-F-O-R-C-E.com. This episode is also sponsored in part by Wooden Horse Corporation and the Equisizer. The Equisizer is a handcrafted, non-motorized mechanical horse used by equine assisted service programs worldwide. The Equisizer requires no electricity, tools, or maintenance and can be used indoors or out for evaluations, warm-ups, stretching, mounting, dismounting practice, and volunteer training, beer, and build confidence with students, clients, and volunteers. It can easily carry the weight of two adults, offering the unique option to ride tandemly. To learn more about the Equisizer, visit Equisizer.com. That's E-Q-U-I-C-I-Z-E-R.com. I love that. I think that training people that aren't, you know, don't directly have to be in social work or be a therapist or be, you know, any type of above and beyond credentialed professional that you're giving them the tools to, to do this. So, I mean, really you could have, um, like we're a path facility. We have CTRIs in our, in our barn. Like, I mean, that it could be an instructor. It could be really anybody that wants to go through the training and, and, and do this with kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can recruit, um, you know, you can recruit community mentors, which is what we train you to do. And um, what's beautiful about that is you can, all, if we want to talk about revenue, because everybody does, mm -hmm. um, you know, every mentor session, your facility is making revenue on, and it's not costing you more staff. So you might have one staff running the whole program, but you might have 20 mentors serving 20 kids, collecting 20 uh, fees each month. Um, so as far as uh, an additional revenue opportunity, it, it makes sense as well. So the the community, the program director is somebody that like a social worker, therapist, or somebody who who oversees kind of the whole program, but that is the idea that the community mentors that are actually facilitating the program are volunteers. Yeah. So they're all volunteers. And honestly, the program director doesn't need to be a social worker or therapist or whatever. Um, as long as they are like run a program director at an equine facility, yes. okay. I feel confident that, um, I can train them on the human services piece of this. Mm -hmm. So our certification really handles that. Like I said, I would rather them be more skilled in natural horsemanship. Um, and then, yeah, everybody is volunteers. All the mentors are volunteers. 
Very cool. So how do you handle like, so you want to start this program, you have to have some kind of evaluation or intake of your participants. How do you draw that line between, you know, this is mentorship. I mean, it's obviously therapeutic mentorship and this is like clinical therapy, right? So that little bit of like, I'm in a little bit over my head. This kid has a lot of stuff that we need to unpack. And I'm, I'm here to just, you know, we're doing, we're doing coping skills or we're doing whatever to work towards the future. But how do you draw that line between, you know, that community mentor facilitating those things and it becoming therapy? Yeah. So we, yeah. So we just don't like, we just don't teach them to be therapists and the program director isn't a therapist. So Mm -hmm. actually we have a harder time with people like myself that have a, you know, more clinical background. And then they're trying to be like, there's so much to unpack here. And it's like, well, but we're not here for that. This is equine assisted learning. We're going to teach self-worth, which guess what is just showing up for a kid over and over again and telling them that they're great at things that they're great at and sticking with it through things that are tough. Um, We're going to teach them independence, which can be filling water buckets and can be um, showing them how great they're doing with the horse during join up. And we're going to teach them responsibility and healthy relationships and emotional awareness. Like, oh, that's interesting. What did your body feel like like that? But it's not like, oh, so yeah, when your mom touched you this way, you know, we're not Mm -hmm. going there. Right. If a kid even says like, well, I get scared because, you know, my dad, my stepdad used to lock me in a closet. We don't say, oh, tell us more about that and let's go there. But we do say like, wow, that's heavy. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Mm -hmm. And we hold the space. And we're like, what would you like to do right now? Do you want to brush the horse through that? Like, that was a lot that you just told me. Do you want to walk? Do you want to do something? You know, and we have a empathetic validating response, but it's not like, oh, here's a nugget. You know, they teach you in the Mm -hmm. ESMHL training, the nuggets, you know, and then you would call in the therapist and say, here's the nugget where now you can go do the deep dive. We're just not doing the deep dive, Mm -hmm. but I think it's almost more important. Like if I even think about when I'm having troubles and I talk to somebody, it's almost more important for somebody to just validate and just hang in the thick of it with you than it is to go like, oh, Sally, here's a nugget. Come, you know, address this thing this kid's dealing with. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, you're allowed to have your stuff. You can share things and I'll be here. Mm -hmm. And um, being okay with that, being comfortable with that, not feeling awkward and holding the space for that is can be more healing than doing some deep dive into their childhood. Absolutely. And I think so many of those kids, I mean, I don't know what the, you can share what the kind of target age for this program might be, but I think that so many of those kids are like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to go to therapy, right? Air quotes. I don't want to do those things. Like, so just being around the horses and like, yeah, like you said, doing chores or doing whatever, where we're learning some of those, those soft skills are so important, but they don't even know that it's happening because it's not, we're not talking about it and we're not diving so deep into that stuff that they don't, you know, they probably already talk about with somebody else or, you know, they have somebody for that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. This isn't talk therapy. And like, I, I referenced it in our webinar, but these kids are therapied out like kids in foster care specifically have to have a therapist and usually the therapists turn over every six months and the kids just have to retell their whole trauma story and they don't even want to go there. They know what to say to get out of it. 
Mm-hmm. But I've had situations with kids where like talk therapy, like even just face to face, which I feel like people that do know natural horsemanship get this, like when you are walking up to a horse and they kind of like drop their eyes or drop their ear or look away. And they're saying like, Oh, you've kind of gotten into my bubble and we respect that. Or we just walk forward. Right. Usually we just blow right through their signals and we put a halter on them and we pull them in. But horses are really good at showing us like face-to-face pressure can be too much for them. And it's the same with kids. I've had um, a lot of success having long conversations with kids sitting in the car just because we're both looking forward and we're not like we're talking about something right now face-to-face, you know what I mean? So being able to do something that they're actively engaged in, that they're proud of, they go to school and talk about how they work with this horse. Like it has so much more um, leverage, I think, for healing mm-hmm. because they're in it. They want to be there. Absolutely. Do you guys ever do um, any kind of riding component or mounted component with the program or is it all strictly ground activities? It's all ground activities. I will say that um, there's a few reasons for that. The first and foremost reason is these kids, um, because of their trauma and their survival, they have a lens of, I'm going to get whatever I can get. Meaning they might go to your fridge and see that you have bottles of water and notice that those are free. You might tell them like, sure, if you need water, you can take water. And they might start like packing their backpack full of every water you have, because to them, they didn't always have water. They didn't always have food. So they really need to like fill up and and pack whatever they can get. Relationships haven't been ones they can rely on and trust and have this great, um, you know, rapport and give and take with relationships have been manipulated and everybody's trying to get something out of someone or people are using people. So to go and take a kid with this perception of human relationship and say, you can ride, it just gives them a situation where they're going to use the horse. I go there, I saddle it up, I ride it, I put it away. And you have lost any opportunity to show them the relationship value of we're going to have empathy. We're going to learn what the horse is saying. We're going to groom the horse. We're going to understand its cues. We're going to eat it, do all of this groundwork, take care of it. And mm -hmm. all of those things. And so somebody could say, okay, Rebecca, well, that's great. And we get the relationship piece, but at some point, doesn't the kid earn that point in the relationship? And so that's kind of where my second piece goes is these are community mentors that are volunteers they're not CTRI. And right. if you guys want to figure out how to make your, your program more complicated and take up a bunch of staff time, you can. But um, I've found that as horse, as kids gain relationships with the horses and learn to do things like join up and like moving the horse around at Liberty and um, that they don't crave to ride anymore. They, they've like learned so much more. Um, being able to do that. So we, we don't ride. Um, but I wouldn't, if somebody said like, Oh, you know, at the end of the year, we let them get on their back. That's fine. I just like question your intention. Like, is it you wanting, like, are you desiring to put the horse kid on the horse's back? Like what, like what is the intention behind it and what's the payoff? And once you do it once, do you have to do it every time? Are you creating uh, more of an issue? So I, I like to just say like, no, so they can expect what we're going to offer. Right. Absolutely. Setting up that expectation so that there's nothing looming there that, you know, is kind of a what if. 
Yeah. And if you say maybe with these kids, it means tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So it's a no or it's a yes. We like, we don't do this like, yeah, maybe later, because that means like, yes. And it's happening tomorrow and they should ask until it happens. That's right. Okay. So start to finish to do this program, you know, if you want to do the whole shebang and start, start, um, integrating it into your center about how long do you think it would take from today? Someone listened to this podcast and they're like, yes, absolutely. I want to do this. About how long do you think until they could actually have that plan in place and into fruition? Yeah. So they could go on and sign up for the certification training. The book is a prerequisite and I don't, um, like the book doesn't come with the training just because so many people start off by buying the book that sending them the book would be like duplicative. But if you listen to this and you're like, I just want to go ahead and get the certification training, I'm fine with including the book for somebody that doesn't have it. Um, So that would just be reaching out to me, but you'd start it. It's about 14 hours. So if you're like me and you're like, blow through things, then you could have it done in a couple of days. Um, because the intensive course that we used to do in person was a two day intensive. So you could get that done certainly within a week. And then, you know, we walk you through this scheduling. There's a whole bunch of stuff you need to do before you're opening your doors for your first session. So, um, some people do it as quickly as three months, meaning, you know, they're going to get their advertisements out. They're going to start telling the community, they're going to raise funds. We have this whole fundraising kit so that you can start putting some dollars in your bank account. And we have emails written for you, copy and paste so that you can send your, your newsletter. Hey, we're starting this program. This is how many dollars it's going to take. We expected it. So all of that. And we really encourage you get funds in the bank, you know, make all these connections with the community, go pitch the program, talk to department of children and families, department of children and families often will pay we, ch- we usually say to charge $200 a month per kid. So that's about four sessions. Um, and we do, it's a, it's a monthly membership. So we don't charge as the kid shows up. It's just 200 and it's done because nobody wants to track that. So <clears throat> you can get those from Department of Children and Families or depending on your state, um, different case management groups that might really appreciate another set of eyes on their kids um, uh, weekly. Um, so, you know, I, three months is probably the shortest, just because you've got to like get your advertising out, you You know, you've got to like, yeah, you've got to recruit mentors. Mentors have to go through their mentor training online. Then you have to do an on-site training for mentors, which we teach you how to do. You know, you have to do all your intake assessments. You have to develop all your plans of care. You have to like, it's a structured program. It's legit. So it takes a little bit of time, but Mm -hmm. the people that do it the fastest are probably three months, um, and we like to start with a school year and have it run the school year because it just like gives everybody the summer off. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of states that are like, yeah, right. We're not not using our summer months because we're in the snow or whatever. Right. So um, people are allowed to do whatever schedule works for them. Yeah. Okay. So let's do touch on funding. So um, what, you know, how do you build those community partnerships that, you know, might say we don't have funding for this. If they do, fantastic. But if they don't, what do you recommend? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I feel like it's really the way that you pitch it. (laughs) So when you go Department of Children and Families, you don't say like, hey, I'd like to be a vendor in your system. And I'd like to, how do I do that? And I'd like you guys to start paying me for this service. Like, Mm -hmm. good luck with that. Right. 
and the people, so the approach is really like, I want to sit down with the director of Department of Children and Families. I want to hear about what the issues are. God knows there's going to be issues. Um, and then tell them how you're the solution. Tell them like, listen, we have a program where we can have eyes on your kid one hour a week. We do detailed activity logs. We can, you know, tell you what's going on. If you have a CASA worker, which is uh, most kids in foster care have a court appointed special advocate that needs to meet with the kid anyway. It's an opportunity for the CASA to meet with the kid there. Like there's all these ways that you can kind of pitch your program as a solution to Department of Children and Families. Mm -hmm. Once you're a vendor, you will get paid. So it's really just becoming a vendor, but I'm not going to say that that's easy and you just like do a little application form. You have right. to show them that you're a solution to a problem. The easiest way to do that and the way that I did that was I served a kid on a scholarship. So raise some money to serve one kid and um, you start serving that kid. And if that kid is in foster care, it's much easier than to say like, hypothetically, I'm going to start a program that's going to help kids in our community. If you're like, we have Sally Jones down here. And she's doing great in our program, but she's about to lose services. And these are the things we've seen. And this is what we've been helping her with. And this is the progress she's made. We'd love to continue these services, but we think you should be paying for it. Once there's a kid and a case manager and a, somebody that that, ha, that kid has a home with, much easier to go up that chain than to just like this random place that wants money. Right. Um, so there's that. Then if you're just like, no, Department of Children and Families isn't going to do anything. Um, I think having, we've just talked to some of our sites that have a lot of luck with having foster parents, adoptive parents um, come out to a night at the barn. Maybe there's a photographer there that will take pictures of the kids, which um, family pictures and stuff is really like kind of a touchy subject for kids in foster care. Um, allowing certain things where people can just meet and greet at your facility. Um, and those people in the community are going to go back and say, this is something that needs to get paid for. So the more support you can get from the foster adoptive community, we do full pay for adopted kids. So adopted kids need just as much support. All they happened was somebody signed on a dotted line, but nothing changed um, except for that they get less support. But um, parents that have adopted out of state custody may have the funds to be able to pay full pay. And many of uh, the kids that I had, in our program uh, are adopted and, and pay full pay. States also have post-adoption funds. So um, you can go to the state and ask if there's post-adoption funds. And if you can make the case that this kid is at risk of coming back into care and being the burden of the state again, unless they get these trauma-informed services, uh, then the state goes, okay, okay, whatever we have to do to keep them in their home. And then, you know, I, this is a program that for grants and for sponsors and corporate partners in your uh, community is, it's a unique program opportunity that has data behind it. You're, you're actually measuring if you're effective. So we've written a lot of our grant language up and we have that as part in part of the member portal for our people so that you can copy and paste and apply for grants and just get the, you know, the 10,000 or 20,000 that you need to start the program off right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If there's a will, I can work with you. The, you know, the, the people that are like, I tried that, you know, mm -hmm. no, we need to be tenacious and we need to get after it. But the thing is, is once you get the funding, like once you become a contractor or a, yeah, a contractor or vendor in the system, you're good. You're in, you're mm -hmm. in forever. It's not like every time you get a kid, you have to beg them like you're in. So you have to take the time. This it's not that this program is no work, but there's a lot of work done for you. 
if I can make a copy and paste email, if I can make grant language, if I can make any administrative asset that's going to be helpful for people, I make it um, and break things down really easily so that people can spend less time with the administrative aspects. In fact, I um, am a nonprofit consultant in my other world, and I just learned so many stable moments locations didn't, they needed just as much nonprofit advice as they did stable moments advice. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a nonprofit academy and actually at the next path conference, I'm speaking on measuring what matters. So defining some metrics for overall success of your program. And I'm also doing a stable moments talk that I do um, just because like, there's a lot of people out there that are just like the nonprofit essentials are really what they need. So I take that lens when I'm uh, providing people with help, um, trying to g- give them some of the fundamentals to get those grants and get in vendors. Some people are really new nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Right. And I could see that being a big demographic for something like this as they're, we're just getting started. We need, you know, a program that we can really get started with and get our your feet wet and get going and get started. And I feel like that's something like the stable moments program would be great for someone who's trying to get started up too. Um, Absolutely. So a few things I'm thinking about, this is kind of off topic, but what, what age range is best for this um, program? So we say three to 18. So it's a pretty wide range, um, but many of our sites just choose to do like six to 12 or they choose a different age range. We talk about activities with littles. Um, I -hmm. personally think that the sooner you can get to these kids and show them that they matter and give them some stability, um, the the better. So we talk about what we do with three-year-olds. We talk about what we do with, yeah, the the itty bitties. And it might just look like we're playing with Legos, Um, Mm -hmm. but we're showing up and we're playing with Legos. Maybe we're petting a horse, Um, you know, we're yeah. doing very small things, but we're, we're there, we're showing them that they matter, we're showing up, and then we're graduating, you know, of course, everybody can come back, however mm-hmm. many years they want to come back. So um, I felt like three was the, you know, youngest we could go, but I do believe that early, in early intervention, for sure. Yeah. And as you were talking about becoming, you know, a vendor, kind of a contractor, and how you're in, you know, kind of for life and yada, yada, well, do you ever get into a situation where they're like, yes, here's all these kids. And you're like, okay, we only can accommodate this many or during the intake process. Is there a process of kind of finding out who is more appropriate for these services or does that make sense? Is there kind of exclusion criteria for it at all? Yeah. And the exclusion criteria really is, you know, use your judgment. We have kids that certainly need to be Um, referred to a higher level of care, Um, you know, things would be like fire starting is an issue. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be abusive towards the animals. Um, They're going to be abusive towards the mentor. Like if the kid's like, oh, every time, you know, she hit her teacher last week and all this, that type of stuff we need to 
think about liability and maybe referring to a higher level of care. But we have plenty of kids that are currently in a higher level of care. We'll have kids that come see their mentor once a week, and sometimes they don't show up because they're in inpatient psych. When they come back to the barn two weeks later, they're now doing intensive outpatient, but they still come to the barn. And it doesn't mean that they're not getting the higher level of care, but they're also not a threat to our program. It would actually be more threatening to them for us to not include them. So you know, we can talk about self-harm and we can, but we can also just give them a space to be with horses while we know that they're getting the higher level of care outside of our program. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend that if you start a program like this, that you make some connections with some higher, you know, people that might have that higher level of care available or a therapist or something, you know, that you have a connection with? I mean, I know a lot of times as they're in that system, they have that already or readily available. But if they don't, like if it was someone who had been adopted or, you know, something like that, having those connections when you see some of those red flags, is that something you recommend? Yeah, that's one of the things that we say, like get a volunteer to build you a resource book, you know, a resource mm -hmm. binder that you're sending people that is all your communities, um, not just therapists, but really developmental trauma therapists that understand that work and can uh, do that with um, neurofeedbacks. Another thing that um, is one, you know, therapy specialty that I tell them to look up if there's anything in their area. But yeah, all of the different possible supports that a family might need, the books that parents can read about trauma and being a connected parent and what that looks like and the professionals that are out there. So um, yeah, we definitely say, because you're going to want the parents to know, you might get some parents that don't even understand the effect of trauma on human development. So you're really starting at um, you know, square one, and you're trying to give them some of the best resources out there. So absolutely, you definitely want to have a, a resource list. Yeah, and connections. Have... And you know, it goes both ways too. like the therapist in the community can go like, oh, stable moments is happening down the road. And this kid is great for stable moments or the Department of Children and Families. To your question about do you ever have too many kids? There's um, Arami Acres in Indiana is one of our locations. And she said that like, she doesn't have enough mentors because Department of Children and Families is just like pouring kids her way. It's unfortunate that we have so many kids that are in need for that, but that to have that many kids that you want to give services to is, is really cool. Well, this has been enlightening. I've learned so much about your program and about, I mean, everything, you as a person and how we're developing all these programs to help people. I just think it's phenomenal. And every day I do this job with this podcast, I just get to meet more awesome people. So thank you for being one of those, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great. You know, if, if there's one thing I want people to walk away with, it's that we can make a difference in these kids' lives. And I know that that's like, yeah, we know everybody always says that, but it really is investing. So we call it stable moments. So a moment, those those are what matter. And I feel like the equine assisted therapies field understands this because they have a hard time quantifying what we do because it's like so magical, right? Mm -hmm. But it's all in the moment that the magic happens. And they're like, oh my gosh, we couldn't even explain that except for like in like amount of goosebumps we got, right? Right. So, <laughs> so I just like, if you can, it's not just like, oh, give some kids an hour a week and like they'll earn life skills. Like it's a movement of being able to equip 
people in your community to see the power of horses, see that they can make play an active role in the lives of children. And there are over 400,000 children in foster care and every two minutes a kid enters foster care. This is the answer. Spending time with a kid at, at five years old, at six years old, at 10 years old, spending time. And hopefully they start to believe that they matter and they are able to make choices that allow them to make healthy transitions into adulthood and allow them to raise their own kids and keep their own kids ending generational trauma. So it's really, it's so much bigger than a mentorship program. I was going to ask you, what's your why? Why do you keep doing this? But that was it, right? I mean, yep. that, that's got to be it. It's just ending generational trauma. I mean, that's, it's big. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for doing what you do. You are making a huge difference in so many kids' lives and thank you for doing what you do. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I'm going to link um, all your fantastic information in the show notes. And then if there are any, if you have any free resources you want to share, um, anything like that, I would love to share those to the Facebook page um, to get people just get it in front of people. I know we don't have, this is an audio only. So any kind of visual resources we can share are awesome. So head over to the Facebook page and I'll um, share some things there for our listeners too. Um, Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with Rebecca? No, you know, thank you all who are listening for the work that you do. It's incredible. I think that more collaboration that I've seen coming from this industry has just been amazing. And the amount of lives that we can touch has been inspiring. I will give uh, the my free webinar, Healing uh, Trauma with Equine Assisted Learning and Mentorship for you to post in the Facebook group so anybody can access that. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by, Rebecca, and um, I appreciate you spending your time with us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another episode. Until the next one launches, stay connected to our community by joining the Not Just a Pony Ride Facebook group. There, we share exclusive educational content, answer your questions, and review new and exciting developments for the EAS community. Don't forget, if you have suggestions for future episode topics or a lead on a great guest that you think our audience would enjoy, click on the link in the show notes or visit us at hetrauniversity.org. This podcast is presented by Hetra University, an educational arm of the Heartland Equine Therapeutic Writing Academy. Hetra University's mission is to provide high-quality educational offerings to our participants and the EAS community. If you'd like to help us work toward our mission, you can make a donation by visiting us online at hetra.org. Again, I can't thank you all enough for helping Hetra change lives one stride at a time.